0: Welcome to Beyond the Roadmap, product talk with AWH, a podcast for product people, by product people. Join us as experts share their experiences and
1: expertise to help you build great products.
0: This is Ryan Frederick. This is Beyond the Roadmap, a podcast by AWH. And I've got Andy Bud. Andy, you pronounce your last name Bud, right? I guess we should have verified this beforehand, but uh, yeah, I'm assuming I, your last name is pronounced Bud, right?
1: Uh, yeah, it's Bud, like Budweiser the beer or Buddy. Yeah, I, I, I can't think of any other way to pronounce it, but maybe there's another exotic way that I'm missing there.
0: Yeah, me too. So I just went for it. But you know, then I also wanted because I didn't want to get your name wrong, if indeed, you know, that's not <laughs> how you pronounced it. But in all of your name phonetic references, you know, Budweiser and Buddy, I mean, just all very positive, optimistic references. Why, well, you know, if you like beer, I guess.
1: It, well, I don't know if you like beer, maybe Budweiser isn't the one to go to, but it's at <laughs> least recognizable.
0: Indeed. So thanks for doing this. In full disclosure, I was actually on Twitter one day and and you know scrolling, you know aimlessly on Twitter, I guess as many of us who, you know, use Twitter do. And I I saw a couple of tweets from you and then I saw one that said something to the effect of, "Hey, if you do a podcast and you're ever up for, you know, a chat around, you know, design and and UX and usability and that stuff, uh hit me up." So I took advantage of that and sent you a a dm and and here we are
1: i know I, I i've never done that before i didn't think anyone would sort of like you know respond but it was very nice that you did so i, I mean i generally i love doing podcasts i've done a ton i enjoy chatting to people about what i do for a living and the industry etc cetera, etc cetera. so i'm always up for having interesting conversations with interesting people so thanks for giving me the opportunity to chat to you ryan
0: yeah and thanks for doing it and i know it's it's um you know you, you you've you done most of your day there already so we'll uh we'll get to it now and and get to the conversation and and let you move on with whatever whatever <laughs> else you want to do the rest of the evening so as as you think about your journey through design and and ux and usability etc why do you think that this is the thing that you were meant to do and and how did you end up here and why do you care about the usability and experience of people engaging with products?
1: Wow, that's a a really dense set of questions. So if I can try and sort of untangle those and and answer them, I'd, I'd love to. I mean, I think I have always, since being a kid, been attracted to kind of new things and particularly new technology i used to you know watch tv programs about space and science fiction and and star trek and all these cool things there used to be science programs called tomorrow's world growing up in the uk that kind of painted this beautiful picture of this amazing new world driven by technology computers and mobile phones and, and all kinds of amazing stuff and so i guess when i was at school Maybe I was just kind of your, your, your classic kind of sort of geeky type sort of school kid, whereby all the other kids were outside like playing football and, and and what have you at lunch break. I was hanging out in the school that we had a computer, like one computer, like a BBC Basic or BBC Micro, which was the first real sort of home sort of affordable computer in the UK. And I used to be playing snake games and programming little um Sort of little drawing robots that would draw squares, the, the the turtle robots, and so I was kind of always an early adopter. As I kind of got old a little bit, you know, and spectrum computers came out and Commodores, I would get those computers. I would kind of get magazines and I would type out kind of games at home, and and I just had a real sort of affinity for technology. I never saw that being a career because when I started, it really wasn't a career. Like I, I knew a few people who were were older, like you know, my my parents sort of friends. And they were computer programmers programming COBOL and and kind of like stuff like this. And it just didn't seem really interesting, like just sitting and kind of like hours on end, just like churning out lines of code. So I kind of sort of set that away. I went to university, studied engineering, didn't really enjoy it. And after university, I decided to go off and do a big traveling experience. So I traveled around Asia for about six years and I taught diving and traveled like in Thailand and Malaysia. And this was sort of just at the point where the internet was sort of, becoming uncoupled from people's individual kind of dial-up accounts so you go to you'd go to like internet cafes in in thailand and sit and i'd be you know emailing friends back home and telling them what i was up to and and checking out where i was going to go next and all that kind of stuff and i just really sort of fell for the internet it was this space where you were two clicks away from something amazing, you know, two clicks away from something you'd never heard of before, where it was full of people that were just kind of making and hacking. And so, you know, I guess being a kind of a, a, like a a nineties kid, you know, kind of typical Gen X, I was a bit, you know, against the man, against authority. And there was this kind of like unbounded space where people could just be creative. And so I kind of thought to myself like, well, I'd like to try and, you know, get to know this stuff. And, and through a few experiences traveling, I I met a couple of people that kind of, you know, I met this one guy in a hostel in Singapore who did this thing called HTML. And he told me it was super easy. Any idiot could do it. You get paid a ton of money and you could travel for six months and work for six months. And so I thought, sounds great. Taught myself to code, HTML, CSS, never did go traveling again, but just kind of got the bug. The ability to kind of, you know, do something in the morning and have it live online, and people using it in the afternoon was so powerful. Considering most of my friends worked in companies where you know they never saw the the end kind of like benefit of the thing they created, they were just like a small cog in a chain. Being a web designer, a web developer, a Flash games programmer, I did a bit of that. Like you really, you know, what you did had an immediate effect, and that was hugely beneficial. I think the other thing was because of like open source and, and view source. You could learn, you know. You didn't have to go and do a course. You didn't have to go and do a three-year university degree. You could just open up a browser, look at what someone else was doing, and, and teach yourself. And so, this feedback loop of of learn, try something, learn, try something was always was always very, very a- attractive to me. But I guess in the early days of the web, design was still very much like graphic design. You know, a client would come to you. You'd ask them how they wanted the thing to look. You'd do a do a design to please them. And it didn't really matter whether the whether the product was successful because you know just having something online meant that you were going to be successful, you know. But over time, I just got really frustrated by the sort of two dimensional nature of of doing things just because they look good, and I kind of started falling into this rabbit warren of 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 books by people like um, Jeffrey Veen, who wrote a book called The Art and Science of Design, who was trying to look at design more from a scientific kind of experimental perspective, or you know the whole um polar bear book um, by Lou Rosenfeld, looking at this new emerging technique called information architecture, and so I started bringing all these things into my practice I started making site maps. I started doing usability testing. I started making prototypes. And this was probably in 2001, 2002, when most of my other colleagues in the industry, even in the company I was working with, thought I was mad because the way you design something is you open up a blank sheet of Photoshop and, and you just started moving things around. But I just felt that like we were moving into a time when you know, the industry was maturing, that people's expectations were higher. And frankly, I was frustrated that a lot of the technology I was using was just really bad. You know, reading things like Jacob Nielsen back in the day made me want to create um, websites and web apps and products and services that were human and humane, that were easy to use, didn't confuse people, didn't frustrate people. So I guess from the very early stages of my career, that's always been a kind of a driving factor for me
0: how do you differentiate if at all between terms and disciplines that seem to you know get blended together and and are often a little bit murky although in some cases i think that they have very different meanings and purposes so things like user experience design user interface usability how do you differentiate between those terms and disciplines? Or do you not really care that much about the differentiation of them? And and as long as the focus is on the simplest, most elegant user experience that adds value for a user, as an industry, what we label those things becomes, you know, mostly irrelevant. How do you sort of see those those terms and disciplines shaking out?
1: I mean, again, an, another excellent question. And, and And it's almost like you've been stalking me on Twitter, because it seems to be the conversation that I have probably more than any other conversation. I I understand both sides of the equation. You know, if you are a very, very senior designer that has seen it all and done it all, and you've seen you know terms morph into other terms and there's so much mud and confusion, I can understand why a lot of those designers will say, hey look, it's all just design anyway. You know, have this kind of like, you know, sort of zen moment we're all interconnected it's all like the matrix and i see through the the matrix of design and and it's all the same and on that point i can understand why people would be very reticent to use labels and name things because they have sort of risen above they're floating in this cloud of of design nirvana. the reality is you know that's a very small proportion of the industry i meet a ton of recent graduates a ton of people that have just spent you know, thousands of thousands of pounds going through university, or tens of thousands of pounds going through university, or thousands of pounds in a general assembly course for a UX intensive. And for them, they come out of the this graduate program, and suddenly they have lots of very, very senior people saying, oh, UX doesn't exist, or you're now this, you're now that. And it's really, really confusing. So for me, I'm less bothered about what senior people call what they do, because I have faith in their ability to do good work. But I do think it's important for us to have some rigor around language, because it's important, I think, for young new designers to understand what we mean when we say certain things. I have a pretty good understanding in my own mind of the differences between, say, visual designer UI designers and UX designers and a difference between UX designers and product designers there is a lot of overlap and I think one of the confusions is the similarities are probably more similar than the differences but also I think why I have a kind of a viewpoint is because I've been doing this industry for so long I have a really good understanding of what people who called themselves UX designers 10 years ago meant and that meaning might have changed, but I have a kind of a, a, an understanding of where that kind of meaning came from. So for me personally, my view of a UX designer is somebody who has a composite set of skills. And these skills typically include an understanding of usability and, and user research, an understanding of information architecture and the ability to kind of structure complex sort of amounts of data by designing navigation schemas, etc. Somebody who understands interaction design, so somebody who can work out the the user journeys through a a complex system and kind of model those in the form of prototyping. And somebody that has an understanding of kind of like sort of business strategy and product strategy. And those four elements, I think, are key to a user experience designer. So for me, user experience designers typically, traditionally, in the UK at least, tended to be much more focused on the conceptual element of design. And they focused on the conceptual element of design, the abstract element of design, because they were usually paired up with a graphic designer. Maybe somebody who was originally a print designer that had moved into to, to visual design, into UI design, but those individuals maybe didn't have the usability skills or the, or the information architecture skills. And so you had for a long time, this kind of pairing of UI designer and UX designer. And this worked really, really well in the context of agencies in the early stage of the industry. However, as demand grew for people with digital skills, and as a lot of their skills became in-house, the makeup and the demand changed. So if you look at a kind of a typical, you know, growing tech company, a company that's got like 200, 300, 400 people, you know, they might build out their core platform once or twice and when they're building it out once or twice, they might need those high level kind of conceptual skills. But actually, a lot of the time, what they're doing is incremental change. They're kind of making changes, they're putting it forward, they're tweaking it and tweaking it. And so a lot of those senior people that were UX designers have kind of navigated or gravitated into product management or into some form of strategy. They are setting the direction, they are setting the strategy, they are maybe working with specialists in research to do the user research. And so with strategy and research taken out, and actually information architecture, particularly in the move from large information-based desktop systems to, you know, simple mobile applications, the need and demand, or the demand, maybe not the need, for IA has, has diminished. And so in that system, you don't need lots of UX designers and lots of UI designers. You need somebody that's a hybrid of the two. And a lot of people that originally called themselves web designers sort of sort of blended into this sort of discipline of of product design. And for me, product designers tend to be, you know, they they have some research skills and they have enough research skills to maybe be testing existing products, but not so much that they're probably doing primary original research, you know, lasting over months and months. They have some interaction design skills, so they are kind of prototyping and testing and, and, and building, you know, building prototypes, but maybe don't have the higher level or, or as deeper level skills of interaction designers, maybe someone that, that, that only focuses on that. What they do have, which most UX designers traditionally didn't have, was higher level visual design skills, and particularly visual design skills that relate to things like motion graphics and motion design. So what I would expect in a product designer is much more understanding of Different platforms, much better understanding of how motion design can kind of tell stories, an ability to prototype really, really quickly and rapidly, and that is a really powerful combination. When you are in a company where you are releasing new things, you know, maybe once a day, maybe once a week, maybe once an hour, that you need somebody that is kind of like able to, to iterate really, really quickly. And so my experience is most people who end up working in house tend to veer towards the the more generalist product design sort of skill set because they are being supported in an environment where some of the other other skill sets have been centralized and also you know a lot of these people are not having to design things from scratch you know they're often working within a system a design system that's already been created they're often working within a set of interaction paradigms you know particular navigation schemas or particular interface elements have already been designed and they're combining these things that already exist to create something new and so, in that instance, you need less people that are used to building things up from scratch, and more people that are that are able to kind of take something and, and optimize it. And both of those sets of skills are really, really valid. And both of those sets of skills are different, but as the industry matures, you know, they coalesce and become more similar. So, so that's that's my take on on that. And then interaction design, I think, is a subset of UX design. But we can, we, yeah, I mean, then we start going down into kind of a really, really nerdy level of of what exactly is you know all of these topics but you know one of the weird things i find is for some reason designers are very very nervous about defining industry titles and jobs maybe because they don't want to feel like they're a gatekeeper they don't want to tell someone that they can't do a certain thing and yet at the same time we have all these new job titles sort of you know blooming like we used to just have content editors but now we have content strategists now we have content designers you know you know we have multiple different titles for different nuanced aspects of writing content and and, and designing content so I don't see why we can't feel the same ability to have nuanced definitions of different types of designer but there we have it I guess
0: yeah isn't some of that a maturation and an evolution of a, a, a discipline and an area of discipline and, you know, whether it's content or whether it's design. And if we talk about, you know, sort of usability and, and sort of user research and validation and usability sort of analysis and testing inside of, of design and user experience design, the various sort of layers and, and then roles are, you know, a reflection of, of a maturing craft. But is, this is... Would, I-
1: I mean, I think you're right. right, but this is also one of the weird problems because I think I think nuanced job titles um, that define very very specific elements of a of a broader sort of industry and community is definitely an example of an industry maturing. The problem I find is not that you know we've got too many people coming up with new job titles. It's almost the opposite. I find too many designers not willing to even countenance the fact that there is anything different from a ux designer or a visual designer or an interaction designer or even you know some people unwilling to believe that ux design is even a thing so weirdly within the design space even though i would like to see more maturity my worry is that we're we're becoming more immature and you know, I you know, I, I I worry sometimes that our industry and maybe our society are moving towards the direction of the movie idiocracy, where we're kind of like we're dumbing things down so much in a desire to make everyone feel happy and comfortable that we're not willing to actually, you know, provide a level of rigor to to, to what we do as an industry. You know, there's this there's this open door policy, which has always been a really great thing around design, but. I do think there is value in just saying, well, these types of people do these things, these types of people do these things, and they're subtly different. And, you know, I think there's richness in language.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think that the... The segmentation of of skill and and plying your craft, I think, um, has value because I don't think that one size fits all from a, a design perspective and and a you know user experience and usability perspective. Mm. Um, and just just w- one there,
1: sorry, just one small thing on that as well is I think for a lot of the time, if you are a person selling your skills, it sort of matters less what you call yourself because at the end of the day, you put a set of skills on the CV and your hope is that, that people who are knowledgeable at this space will look at the skills you have and that kind of makes a lot of sense but there are a lot of people that are hiring for roles in large organizations that maybe don't have the sophistication maybe you know they're building out a design team but they don't have a head of design that really understands what good design looks like so those job specs will go to the hr person and the hr person needs to understand the difference between a UX designer and a UI designer and a product designer and an interaction designer. And so a lot of the arguments I find people having online around the the unnecessity of having specificity in job titles is because these people often have never had to go and recruit somebody, have never worked in a company that doesn't understand the market. And so I think that is something that um, is also kind of worth the bearing in mind, that you often the conversation on job titles isn't to benefit you, it's to benefit other people. And I think we live in a society now which is really weirdly selfish that people will go, well, if I personally see no value in it, then the thing cannot have value. And I think from a right. user center perspective, we need to think, well, just because I haven't found value in it, if somebody else finds value in it, what what is it for me to knock that down and tell them that the way they're using it is wrong? And so I think we need to get over this sort of ego thing. And, and if people find value in stuff, accept that and appreciate that.
0: Yeah, totally. I totally agree. One of the things that I I find interesting is as the the world of of creating software has matured and evolved, product as a category has sort of, you know, has sort of taken over. Mm. And you know the, the the concept of you know product management and and you know product owners inside of Agile, et cetera, and this whole discipline around product has sort of evolved. I think rightfully because I think that we I think we didn't know what to call it before, and now we sort of have an understanding that if you're not good at product and all that that means and and all that containerizes, it's kind of fatal, right, to not be good at product now. Yep, I'd agree. And I think even even a website is a product of that company that's putting that site on the web for someone to engage with. Typically, the intent of that product is for marketing business development purposes. But I think that still is a product of that company. It just happens to be their sort of marketing presence on the web. How do you sort of see that you know, this sort of product takeover? And do you think that, that even when it comes to marketing things and business development, digital presences, should a company be looking that, at that as a product and managing it as a product? What's your take on all of that sort of, you know, product takeover?
1: Absolutely. I mean, again, I think this is another example of a a cottage industry becoming professionalized. And when when something gets professionalized and, and gets to a certain level of scale, you need people whose role is around coordination. And I think product managers, you know, their role is to coordinate all these various moving parts, but in a way that they are owning the outcome. And the outcome has to be a great product that delivers value to the business and value to the customers. And everybody involved in that chain is trying to do the same thing. You know, the developers are trying to create super fast, highly optimized code in order to deliver that value. The the designers are trying to create a wonderful experience to deliver that value. The marketers are trying to drive traffic to deliver that value. But sometimes, even though the ultimate goals are aligned, the routes to doing that are often become unaligned. And so product managers have this really, really important role of bringing all these three things together. And basically, you know, my, my belief is great product managers respect the skills that have been developed over time between these different professions, but will step in and take ownership when there is clear disagreement and somebody has to be the the, the decision maker. I think one of the challenges happens when you have product managers that have this like, the CEO of the, the product kind of mentality, when maybe they haven't worked with really, really great CEOs. I think there's a lot of mistake around management being, I tell you what to do. And if you don't like it, I'm going to shout at you. And that's not a good model for management. And so I see a lot of my friends in, you know, they used to be the sort of the, 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 the kind of the not really joke, but the challenge that like designers and developers never used to get on. Nowadays I see more often that designers and developers are getting on really well because they have sometimes a common enemy in product which I think is a real shame because I think great product managers are worth their weight in gold because there is a and I think that the, the key here is is around what a good product management is a lot of product managers in my experience are recently renamed project managers or recently renamed BAs and a lot of big traditional companies have kind of heard that this thing called product manager don't really know what the difference is so we'll take a bunch of people inside an existing organization give them a new name then expect them to work in a different way than they did before and so A lot of product management is actually bad product management but just to just to be clear here 90 percent of everything is crap so a lot of development is crap and a lot of (laughs) a lot of design is crap as well so i don't want your audience think i'm deliberately beating up on on product managers but great product managers aren't just order takers and delivery people you know great product managers have a real keen sense of what it feels like to use a great product these are consumers of, of, of products. These are the kind of people that will go out and be constantly trying new tools when they come online. They'll be early adopters. They know what a good product feels like, and they're able to articulate that in a way that cuts through the differing opinions of design, marketing, and um, dev in order to create an outcome that is beneficial for everybody. And in some engineering-driven companies, you know, maybe if you're dealing with middleware, that product vision maybe could come from somebody that has more of a developmental background. You know, if you're dealing with a consumer focused product, maybe that understanding from, of the user experience might come from a design background or a research background. You know, one of the great things about product management managers is they come from a whole variety of different backgrounds. The challenge is putting somebody from the wrong background in charge of a product that they don't really fully understand, you know, can be, can be sort of quite disastrous and so i think there are lots and lots of problems but i think also this is why actually a lot of my senior friends that used to be ux designers four five six years ago and very very good ones have slowly migrated into becoming product managers because they have that kind of that that sensitivity towards quality they have that horizon scanning ability they have the ability to kind of craft really strong strategies that actually land and can be deli- delivered and they're really really good at bringing people along the journey, like designers are really, really good at telling stories and, and, and showing to stakeholders why certain courses of action are important rather than others. And so I think we are going to slowly see more and more UX people migrate into product. And I think that can only be a good thing.
0: Yeah, agreed. I'm going to weave two things together here in this next question. Because I think there's a there's a common thread from both of them that really comes together in in, in one question, and it makes sense to tie them together it, design and there there's an increased obviously um, recognition that design is important and usability is important and user experience is important yet um, with that recognition there there seems to be all too often design is still sort of undervalued and Design sprints and design thinking are still things that some organizations need to be convinced make sense and and or value. And I'm going to dovetail that with Agile was and the adoption of Agile as a production methodology around um, development and pr- and product development was supposed to be sort of the holy grail of, well, if we just adopt Agile and if we just become agile, then we're going to get better at. Creating products that users value and that users want to use and that solves problems for users, so you know design is has grown in importance, but still is is I think to a great degree undervalued. Agile, I think, was was significantly overvalued, and just because you become agile and you operate now in in sprints, etc. I think that was overvalued and never, de- for many organizations, never sort of delivered on the promise. So how do we take a methodology like Agile that was supposed to deliver and was kind of, you know, overhyped and overvalued and design, which is still somewhat undervalued and bring them together to be an organization that's good at product?
1: Um, again, you're asking all the kind of the, 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 or touching on all the kind of big existential problems with our industry, which is is wonderful. I think we are moving to a sort of a post-Agile, post-UX age. I think we have spent the last five or 10 years bringing Agile into our our organizations and practices. And a lot of good has come out of it. But also, we've seen some of the, the challenges, you know, working in Agile as well. And so I think I mean, weirdly, the term agile is meant to kind of demonstrate its agility and its flexibility and its willingness to change. And yet, ironically, agile is often practiced in an incredibly rigid, dogmatic way. And so one of the things I find really weird is, I think, for me, if I go and reflect on the agile manifesto, there isn't a single thing in that manifesto that I disagree with. I think it is all really, really good pragmatic you know, kind of thoughts but the way it has been turned from a, a high level philosophy into a system into a process has actually lost some of that that flexibility and you know i think agile these days is often kind of practices a religion you have to do these things and if you deviate then you're 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 a bad person but also it's become a a get out of jail free card because anytime somebody says oh but agile is problematic people will just jump in and say well it's not agile's fault you're doing it wrong but I know very, very few teams that are doing it right. I know very, very few teams that are actually doing all the things that they're meant to be doing. And so you do sometimes have to ask a question, in if that is the instance, like if Agile is perfect, but nobody's doing Agile well, what comes next? And so I think the sort of post-Agile movement is trying to pull the best from Agile, but be more flexible, be less dogmatic and reassemble processes in a way that kind of maybe is more humane and, and more user friendly. And I think, you know, um models of organisational kind of structure, the kind of things that you might see in Peter Merholtz's book or the kind of things that you might sort of see organisations like Spotify collaborating around with their kind of tribes and squads and, and kind of guild model is a way of trying to maybe deal with some of the kind of perceived weaknesses that, that, that Agile has had. I think for me, one of the main problems with Agile is, you know, well, there's, t- there's, two, there's two or three problems with Agile. So first of all, I think it's very, very difficult to build a coherent end-to-end considered experience if you break that experience up in small chunks and give those chunks to different kind of groups of people. And so quite often what you find is it's very, very quick to deliver products but there's a huge amount of kind of design and experience debt as the lack of coordination means that different teams and different groups start building something and it turns into a big picture. But because of the lack of coordination, it, it maybe lacks some of that kind of coherency that uh, the, the traditional waterfall top-down approach would have delivered. Now, I'm not for a moment saying that the Because of that, I want to go back to the waterfall approach. But there are lots of people in Agile trying to kind of balance the two. How can we deliver a big picture while at the same time breaking things down into chunks? The worst form of Agile for me is when those chunks are broken down into like mini waterfall projects. You know, the, the, the beauty of Agile, the promise of Agile is that we're going to continually deliver value. And at the end of every sprint, we are going to see whether the thing we've made stands up to the quality that we're trying to aim for and the value we're trying to deliver. And if it doesn't, we will go back and iterate and we will iterate again and we iterate again. And that is a great promise. But very, very few teams I see ever go back and do the iterating they might go back and do a bit of technical debt fixing you know they might even do a little bit of design debt fixing but very rarely do people say this isn't good enough we're going to do it again and start again because usually you have a cadence that you've set usually you have a timeline you're trying to deliver against usually there's a level of velocity you're trying to measure yourself at and so rather than kind of you know starting again most you know, scrum masters or, or, or POs will look at it and go, it's good enough, let's move on to the next thing. It's good enough, move on to the next thing. It's good enough, move on to the next thing. And in those kind of environments, they're very good at keeping velocity up, but that can be really, really hard on designers and developers, but particularly designers who really, really care about the quality of their output. Because Agile tends to be a dis- development-driven process, and designers are kind of expected to somehow fit around that cadence. And it's very easy to break, you know, complex user stories into, you know, I'm going to spend half an hour working on this algorithm and half an hour on that routine and this, that and the other. It's quite difficult to break down design into kind of those really easily planning pokered kind of like chunks of, of, of focus work. And So I think, you know, there was a time when designers ruled the roost and you know, developers got a really, really kind of like, you know, bad uh, you know, sort of you know, were treated badly as a result. I think that power balance has kind of switched over. And I think that kind of then comes on to your second point about why why designers do feel like they're undervalued. I think they're undervalued because the process of agile makes it much more difficult for designers to actually release and unlock and tap that potential. And so designers always feel like they're underperforming. At the same time, you know, If you are working in a fairly mature company, you know, you will probably have five developers for every one designer. If you are working in a fairly immature company, you might have 10 or 20 developers for every one designer. So purely from a point of organizational politics and power, you know, if you have, you know, 20 designers and 400 developers, who is going to be the team that gets the most resources? Who is going to be the team at the board? You know that gets the most support, you know, you probably will have a CTO at the board level. You probably won't have a CDO, a chief design officer, or a CPO, a chief product officer. If you're lucky, you'll have a VP of design and that VP of design will probably report into the CTO. So if there are any situations where one team over the other, developers or designers, have to kind of be, you know, be slightly underserved. It's just natural. It's not deliberate, but it's natural that the CTO will probably understand the needs of the developers much, much better than the needs of the designers. At the same time, I don't think designers do ourselves any benefit because we're very whiny. You know, I love designers. I am a designer, but we don't half moan about our kind of our our lot in life. And, you know, we want to build these big, perfect solutions and i think designers need to be a little bit more pragmatic you know we have a belief that design can deliver value but often we're so ivory tower about these things that we won't come down off our ivory tower and actually just roll up our sleeves and start delivering business value you know and i think the more that designers deliver business value the more businesses will value them, and the more we will then be able to argue our case for delivering user value and usability and, and quality and, uh, and kind of you know just dealing with design debt. And so yeah, I think designers can be quite difficult to work with, and particularly designers inside organisations. Like I say, if there are twenty designers and and, and you know or, or ten designers and two hundred developers there's understandably going to be this sort of tribal behavior and designers can kind of retreat into their, into their little kind of, you know, tribes, which is why, you know, one level distributing them around in terms of squads and stuff can be really interesting on another level. You know, then you're the one designer on a team of like seven or eight developers, you know, one BA, one product owner, and it can feel really, really isolating. So I think sadly, we just have the numbers against us and product has sort of jumped in and, almost kind of eclipsed design. You know, I know a lot of companies that will, you know, would not dream of having a product team without a dedicated product manager, but they would quite happily share designers across two or three product teams. In which case, you know, suddenly you've got a case where you've got five designers, you've got 10, 20 product managers, and you've got you know 100, 200 developers. And so suddenly product management is now being seen as a bigger, more important thing than design. So yeah, I think it's a a complicated environment. Uh, so yeah, it's under, it's understandably challenging.
0: Yeah, it's a good segue into a, a, another line of conversation, which is one of the challenges of product and product design is creating an experience that users value and and solving a problem that they care about, and then aligning that with the with the vision and the business outcomes that the company quote unquote the product owner. Right. Ultimately wants to get out of creating this product. And many still struggle with striking that balance of what the users value and the user and what the users want and what the company needs from the creation of this product and the business outcomes associated to it. How do you think about striking that balance? How have you seen some organizations successfully strike that balance of serving their own needs while creating value in solving a problem for users?
1: Well, again, I think this comes down to one of the things I said earlier, which is there needs to be sort of equity amongst the three partners that make up a good product. You know, you need to have a very, very good technical lead who can sort of cogently explain all the challenges they're facing with their platform. You need to have a really, really good design lead that can sort of like be the champion for kind of user needs. And you need to have a really good product manager that can kind of be the champion for business needs and kind of align all these things together. If you find yourself in a situation where you have, you know, more junior designers, more senior engineers and product people who maybe are inexperienced, but have a lot of authority within the organization because they report to a VP that has power within the organization, then you're always going to struggle to hear the voices of the designers. And so I think, you know, it's really around making sure that you have people that are leading those teams that have skills in particular areas that can work together as a really, really good team and don't sort of, you know, take a more dictatorial approach. And, um, and that all comes down to culture. So a lot of these problems are around kind of like building a building a great collaborative culture and these are all the same problems that every business and every organization has whether it's design and development and product management or whether it's marketing and and technology and and finance you know it's about building that kind of that culture but yeah you know I think the the, the designers are the champions for user needs, but also as I say you know designers can be quite opinionated and I think sometimes we need to do, Demonstrate that the ideas that we have have traction and can drive the business forward. And at the end of the day, that's all businesses care about, really. They want to see the value being generated. And if you know, if the designers can come in and demonstrate quick wins, and can demonstrate that the amount of money that gets, you know, that get delivered by investing in design, massively affects the bottom line of the company, then more more money will go that way. You know, I've got a friend that um, joined a design team at a really, really big uh, travel company five years ago, and he joined a team of five. The team, the design team now is about 130 people. He's the head of design, and he's grown that team from five to 130. And the way he did it is he was able to prove to the business that for every dollar invested in design, they got $2 back. Now, that's a sure thing. If you, as a business owner, know that for every dollar you put in something, you're going to get $2 back, you're going to invest in it. And so that's one of the ways and techniques that designers need to prove their value is actually to prove their value. You know, just saying, you know, the God Don Norman or the God, you know, Jared Spall or, you know, who, who, whichever design God that you, you know, you worship at the altar of says that this is important. So it must be important. It doesn't matter a job unless you can actually demonstrate it. So demonstrating your value, I think, is
0: key. So you've been at this for a while now. You're, um, I think it's fair to say you're a seasoned veteran in the, um, in the design field and you do a fair amount of, of mentoring based upon the bio that's up on, on the, uh, the clear left website. So why do the mentoring? Did, you know, are you just at a point where you're, you know, you're experiencing a midlife crisis and you feel like you need to check a couple of of boxes on the good side to make sure that this works out for you in the end? (laughs) Or is there more to it than that?
1: (laughs) Oh, what a what what an awesome question! Um, I different things drive different people. I'm in the UK, you know. I have a pretty nice life. I'm not going out there to crush it. I'm not going out there to like you know make my next billion dollars. You know that's not the thing that motivates me. I genuinely love our industry. And pretty much everything I've done over in my career has been to push that industry forwards. So, you know, in the early stages, I was one of the really early proponents of web standards. You know, I was, I was you know, there when the browser wars were going on and I fought the browser wars and, and you know, tried to push the, the industry forwards. And, you know, all of the things we use now, CSS and HTML and web standards all kind of come out of that desire to push things forwards. You know, I love speaking at conferences. And it's not just because I want to have another check mark on my CV or because somehow it gets me a, a raise or wins work. I love speaking at conferences because I feel indebted to all the people that came before me that I learned from for free. And I want to pay it forwards. I want to kind of like, you know, share my knowledge and skills to make other people better. Because at the end of the day, a lot of the kind of the research around what motivates people is having a mission and and doing good in the world. And so I really want to be able to help other people kind of push the industry forwards because, you know, I can make people's lives better, you know, as an individual designer or developer by making one website or one app, I can make people's lives even better by running an agency of 30 or 40 people that helps maybe, you know, 30 or 40 clients a year, you know, make things better and, and put better work into the world, generate value, take away pain and frustration, I can do even better if I go and speak at conferences and hopefully help in a small way, thousands of people a year, you know, improve their, their practice. So it's really about kind of like making, you know, having an impact in the world and, and doing good. That's why I speak at conferences. That's why we run our own conferences. So, you know, I've been running a conference called UX London now for 10 years. That's coming up in June. i have running a conference called Leading Design, which is all about kind of design leadership. And that's been going for three or four years. And we've got our next event in um I said UX London's in May. In June, we're doing leading design in New York. And all of these things are to try and help all these people that I see struggling push their career forwards. And that's where, where the mentoring comes in as well. You know, I mentor some more junior designers that are kind of like just getting their getting their foot on the ladder. But it's really, really good to kind of help people. And so you can see how your involvement can kind of, you know, it's not going to make these people better, but it might close the gap. You know, you might find that, you know, that they would get to where they were going eventually in like eight years. But maybe with your involvement, they get there in seven or six or five. And maybe they learn more, more quickly and have a more fulfilling life. And who wouldn't want to do that? At the other end of the spectrum, I work with a lot of, you know, design leaders. I work with boards in 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 sort of large companies and and mds of of big like you know international brands and a lot of these people similarly they have real challenges like these people have got big pressures they've got boards to to look after and, and and kind of like investors to kind of please they have very very often very very aggressive deadlines and a lot of these people are not digital natives So working with somebody like me that can kind of help navigate through this kind of maelstrom, because everybody is telling them all the time that this is the most important thing they need to think about. Technology, marketing, social media, design. And so trying to help them unpick that is incredibly rewarding. And when you see the work you do, you know, maybe even if it's only, you know, over three or four meals or three or four meetings with somebody, and you see the result of them changing the way that they deliver work in their, you know, their their hundred million, their half a you know billion dollar you know companies. It's incredibly satisfying because again, you know, you've you through the ability to impact or work with one individual has had an effect that is a multiplier of what you ever could have done on your own. And so that's kind of why I, why I do it. And whether it's an early stage startup, whether it's a junior designer or whether it's a CEO of a big, you know, FTSE, you know, kind of Fortune 500 type company, it's all about, you know, putting more good into the world, I guess.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. And, you know, uh, congratulations on the obviously a, a very successful career and the an agency and you know the you know kudos for giving back and and supporting the industry as a whole and others that are now coming up to the ranks. Um I think that uh says a lot about you. And when I saw your tweet originally, uh, and then I went to the site and I, I sort of began to, you know, peel back the layers and and you know, was asking myself, you know, is this going to be a good conversation? Is this somebody you know worth talking to? It was pretty clear that it would be, and it made sense for us to to do this and have this conversation. So, I appreciate that. Any parting thoughts as we uh, as we wrap up the conversation? I was
1: literally just going to do one other thing around the, the mentorship because I, I I don't want to necessarily come across as some kind of like trying to be some kind of saintly do gooder. You know, if you are if you are <laughs> if you if you mentor people, there's a lot of value you get as well. You know you get, you know, one of my friends kind of is really into martial arts. And, you know, I kind of always thought that like the black belt was like the highest level of martial art you could get to. And he was like, no, 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 that's just the time you really start learning. Because when you get to a black belt, you have to start teaching people. And when you start teaching people, that's the point when you understand finally why you were taught all the things you were taught and what they really mean. And so you get to a point in your career whether it's a designer or a design leader or a company founder, there's a be- the only way that you can learn because there aren't that many more people, you know, you could learn from somebody like, if I've got a 40 person agency, I could learn from somebody that's, you know, that's got a 60 person agency, but you learn much more by going to somebody who's got a 20 person agency or somebody that's running a a 10 person or 20 person design team and sharing all your knowledge because you learn through their experience of processing it. You have to figure out how to, to give that information in part that and that requires a lot of internal thought and so there's a huge amount of benefit there just you know for your own learning ability also you know you just get you know it's really nice to be you know to, to be thanked and, and to help people so you know building up relationships and, and living vicariously through other people's experiences is is kind of incredibly value and for me a lot of it is kind of getting energy you know I've been working in this industry for 20 plus years. I've been running my agency for almost 15 years. Sometimes it can feel like a hard slog, but you go and talk to somebody who's got this passion and fire in their eyes and you come out of that meeting you know, with so much energy that then you kind of divert that energy, direct energy to the thing that you were working on. And so I think mentorship is not just something you do at the end of your career when you're trying, you're feeling guilty about all the the bad, you know, ethical decisions you made. <laughs> you know, some people do do that, you know, there's kind of like an assuasion of guilt. But I think no matter what right. level you are, there is always somebody that is behind you that you can help you know them but they can also help you and 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 the benefit you get I think is really really important so even if you're only doing it for selfish reasons you know that, that there is there's a huge value there
0: yeah i agree i think it centers you right and it brings you back to the purity of why you're doing what you're doing and and why you've been doing it and why you're interested in it because people that, that are new and sort of following behind you, they still have that level of excitement and interest and intrigue in it that, that sometimes the grind, you know, wears out mm-hmm. of us, right? And, 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 and then we need that. We need to be reinvigorated because we see the anticipation and the optimism in, in somebody else who hasn't quite been you know through the through the mill the way that that uh, we have as as maybe having done it uh, a little bit longer it's than also I have.
1: great training as well, like let's say you're a lead designer or a lead developer, and you're thinking about going into management, but you've never managed people before. taking a mentor is a great way for you to practice your your skills at kind of coaching and training and imparting value. A lot of designers I know kind of feel that they've hit a bit of a glass ceiling. And one of the best ways of developing is, is by working with other people. Similarly, I know a lot of my friends are now moving into like maybe the third phase of their career where they've maybe left their, their jobs as design leaders or company founders and are starting coaching, you know, and, and kind of like consult, like consultancy jobs. And having that ability to kind of practice that on other people, I think, is really, really useful. Similarly, I've got a few friends that kind of are in startup investing, and one of the best ways of kind of like starting to do, you know, little angel investing or kind of like you know throwing down with a small kind of VZ fund, is by having practice by coaching and and and, and supporting kind of early stage founders. So you know, the best way to become an angel investor is to have you know have had like five, six, seven founders that you've been coaching and you know, it naturally kind of progresses there. So you can also use these mentorship relationships as a way of figuring out what you might want to do next.
0: Yes, for sure. Well... I've enjoyed the conversation very much. Thank you for taking the time to do it. It's been Andy Budd, co-founder and CEO at Clear Left, and I, I, Andy, I will let you say what Clear Left. Is. I was I was gonna about to say what Clear Left is. Why don't you Why don't you do that since uh, you actually own the place and I'm just an innocent bystander. <laughs>
1: well, yeah, thank you. I mean, so we started as like probably the first. Agency in the UK specialised in user experience design. Now everybody is calling them user experience design, so I think the the, the terminology has become to mean less. But what we mostly do is we are an agency of 30 or 40 people that work very, very closely with internal design teams to help their design teams unlock that power and passion of design in order to have it flourish within the companies. So we help companies deliver better design work through working with their design teams to kind of empower them and move them forward. And that can be sometimes through coaching, that can be sometimes through running design sprints, that can be sometimes through delivering whole new capabilities and features but whichever way we do that along the way we're, we're coaching and training on and mentoring and, and building up the internal teams and again that's what we love so like every project has a coaching and mentoring and sort of training perspective for us because you know companies don't want to be reliant on third-party agencies companies want to be reliant on their own you know, you know, managing their own future. And so I think as an agency, our job is to help them get there. It's not to take work off them, it's to get them to a point where they never need us in the future.
0: Yeah, make them more capable, make them more self-sufficient. And it's kind of digital
1: transformation. It's, you know, I hate the terminology, but it's design-led digital transformation. We're helping companies transform into new kinds of businesses by using all the skills that we've built up over the last sort of 15 years, working with hundreds and hundreds of companies. We're now helping those, large companies you know re-transform re, you know reorganize themselves from the inside
0: yeah awesome i love it well thanks again for joining indy uh, i appreciate it very much it's been a terrific conversation and uh this is ryan frederick with awh and this has been uh, beyond the roadmap need some help with product awh is a digital product consulting user experience and software development firm here to help
1: you create great digital products Check out www.awh.net or follow us on Twitter at AWHNet to learn more.